Today's podcast concerns another unread author. Well, you're all going to say, oh my gosh, um, after Cousins, whom no one reads today, and, and Earl C. Kenton, the, uh, the auteur of uh, House of Dracula, uh, what is he putting on us today? But I want to tell you today about Irvin S. Cobb, one of the most talented and Kipling-esque writers of the early 20th century in this country. Unfortunately, for reasons that will become very obvious, Irvin S. Cobb is not read today at all, and he is almost completely forgotten, except among a few aficionados of sort of popular Southern literature, or people who are interested in the movies of John Ford or Will Rogers. But I have found that some of the insights of Cobb, if you can um, take away the enormous baggage of cultural context, which I'll talk about, some of the insights of Cobb are among the most moving of any short story writer I know of. Now, Irvin S. Cobb was born in Paducah, Kentucky in 1876 and died in 1944. And uh, you could go through your whole life never Today, hearing of Irvin S. Cobb, except as a footnote to the struggle against prohibition, uh, some note about some of his short stories, for example, in the horror genre, which he just sort of cast off and threw out, um, or if you were interested in the cinema of John Ford, you would encounter him somewhat quizzically in three movies that Ford made. One was called um, Judge Priest, which was made around 1935, and was uh, was uh, entirely based on a uh, on a short story by Cobb, which he'd written for the Saturday Evening Post, concerning his sort of uh, iconic figure, the Kentucky Judge William Pittman Priest. These are known as the Judge Priest stories. And uh, Ford uh, turned one of them, it's called actually A Treeful of Hoot Owls, into a really beautiful and touching movie in the mid-30s starring Will Rogers. Uh, later on, uh, uh, Ford, who was very close, actually, and a great admirer of Irvin S. Cobb's stories, which underline all un underneath all their homespun apparent sentimentality, uh, uh, con convey some very deeply felt um, truths about love and mercy and grace and sympathy for the underdog. Um, Rogers, Will Rogers, who worked with John Ford on Steamboat Round the Bend in 1936 or so, uh, they actually put Irvin S. Cobb, who at this point was a very portly, frog-like looking sort of caricature of a professional uh, uh, southerner with his mint julep and his big cigar and his bulging eyes and his uh, rather artificial accent and so forth and so on. He um, had a supporting role in Steamboat Round the Bend, which is very good and easily available. Um, on Amazon or Netflix. But uh, then, uh, quite a while after Cobb died in 44, um, John Ford uh, made one of his little sort of in-his-back-pocket movies that, together with The Fugitive and Wagon Master, was his favorite, Ford's favorite film he ever made. And that was in 1953 with the Republic Pictures called The Sun Shines Bright. And The Sun Shines Bright is based on three stories by Ford's favorite popular writer, Irvin S. Cobb, about the Judge priest character in the little town of Fairfield, Kentucky, during the years uh, before uh, 1900, but uh, after Reconstruction. You might call them really the Jim Crow days of the 
of the uh, post-Reconstruction South, but uh, before World War I and before any real change in the, in the oppressive social structure. And uh, uh, this movie, which Ford made in 1953, which is hard to watch today because of a performance by Step and Fetch It that gives uh, people really the hives and the heebie-jeebies, and you really can't say anything about it except for that. If you take that out of it, you have a parable in the funeral of a prostitute, which Judge uh, Priest conducts at the end of the movie, which is from a story by Cobb that was uh, uh, actually um, uh, put out in, in the, again, right around World War One, called The Lord Provides. The end of that movie, to anyone with a kind of Christian or caritas or brotherhood of man or sort of, uh, I'd like to teach the world to sing uh, kind of view, that ending of The Sun Shines Bright is one of the most astounding parables of the uh, of the uh, of the gospel, you might actually don't have to say might. It's evident in the words of the story as conveyed by Ford on the screen. That movie is a titanic achievement of an unmediated parabolic picture of grace as it is understood really in the New Testament gospels. So um, I got interested in Irvin S. Cobb about 30 years ago and used to rent his movies on 16 millimeter film and show them in parishes and um, that is the Ford versions of them. And uh, then I heard that uh, the first thing Ford did when he got to Paducah, Kentucky in, what, 1961 or so to, to film his segment of How the West Was Won was to go to his old friend Cobb's um, uh, uh, marker in the Oak Grove Cemetery overlooking the Mississippi River, and he communed with his friend Cobb uh, in 1961. Now, um, let me tell you a little bit about the life of this interesting figure, uh, let me tell you a sort of in broad pictures what he did, and then I'll uh, also explain why he's unreadable in the current context, and we may have to wait 150 years for Irvin S. Cobb to be able to be read again without people going absolutely through the roof at the stereotypes which he and his context uh, simply had. Remember, he was writing this man uh, right about the time that Birth of a Nation was being made. He shared exactly the same worldview of uh, David Wark Griffith, the great genius. And uh, uh, so his work is as sullied in its way as Birth of a Nation is uh, for people almost when it was made. And Cobb is not read for these reasons, but in 150 years ago, when these issues have changed uh, context and format and entirely different kinds of identities and groupings, which will inevitably be the case, are working their way out into the historical process, it will probably be possible in the same way that we can read, uh, you know, um, Xenophon or or uh, any number of uh, pagan uh, theognists, Hesiod, uh, Greek poets today, and uh, we don't have to necessarily accept their hierarchical views of maleness or whatever you want to say because it's ancient Greece. Well, probably only in 150 years can we read Irvin C. Cobb, but I personally have read just about everything that Cobb wrote because I'm interested in the deeper issues, which I think are there, and that's why I'm doing this podcast. Now, he began as a reporter in Paducah, and then he went down... Uh, 
uh, to Louisville uh, and became a successful reporter there. He was a very sharp guy uh, from a middle-class professional background in Paducah, and he was so smart that he became a reporter for the New York uh, Times in Europe, and he uh, began to write short stories, as always happens with these Southerners. They go to New York. The, you know, New York, I mean, people used to say, Paul, you know, every Cardinal Episcopal parish in New York City, if we don't watch out, is going to be helmed by a Southerner who's in love with the idea of being in New York. Well, it's it's not just the Episcopal Church. It's HBO and it's Time Inc. and it's... Uh, all sorts of, if you actually find out who's really, really successful in New York, you'd be amazed at the number of, uh, of, of people who hail from the South. Uh, and that's in all the different branches, because New York has this kind of magical Emerald City feeling often for, for young Southerners. And it certainly did then. And Cobb, who was talented, uh, took a job and went overseas for the New York Times and was the New York Times reporter on the Western Front before America entered World War I and actually got himself captured by Germans and wrote a, a book called Paths of Glory, interestingly enough, and very vivid, um, vivid vivid uh, reports of his uh, of his experiences in the with the French army and the western front and he became a national figure through his short stories and through his high profile as a war reporter he continued with the times for many years became very successful built a a large house in Ossining, New York, outside of New York, called Rebel's Ridge. Again, it's a very small world. Uh, Mary and I know that house intimately because uh, 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 someone we knew in Scarborough, New York, uh, lived there, uh, people we loved, and actually we had a big benefit at that house, uh, now owned by even a different family, and the very house where Cobb produced many of his later middle period work, the sort of outbuilding uh, uh, on Rebel Ridge, which is still exists this wonderful house uh, out of Ossining, Madman, uh, that house, uh, that side building was where someone we really loved and absolutely a man of great belovedness, an older gentleman whom we know who's now gone to his reward. He lived in the, in the sort of apartment uh, cum garage building where Irvin S. Cobb wrote half his stuff. So it's an extraordinary small world to me, and I can picture this man in this place. Now, he became famous, wrote a lot of books, got too involved in politics, wrote millions of articles for the Saturday night, yeah, Saturday evening Post and Cavalcade and all these <coughs> Collier's magazines that were big then, and then um, got a, a career in Hollywood, because he was sort of like a, I guess, I mean, Arthur Godfrey or somebody really famous, uh, you know, Art Linkletter, a sort of a humorist figure who who is unbelievably all over the media and then sort of disappears, you know, and the next generation has never heard of the man. Well, he became very famous, wrote many books, in particular the Judge Priest stories. His great achievement was short stories, and he wrote dozens and dozens and dozens of them, many of which you can find uh, on the internet, uh, but the greatest ones, the so-called Judge Priest stories, which are his masterpieces. Uh, they are not quite at the standard of Kipling, but I find them uh, even more moving because they're so in touch with a graceful worldview and a graceful picture of the, of the power of the absolution and the love for the underdog and the person who really needs help when he or she needs it. Now, these stories, the Judge Priest stories, 
you can actually uh, get. There are many editions of them on eBay and so forth, and, and you'll just have to do it because you can find them. Uh, and a lot of them are reprinted in these special computer editions, which you have to, have to order, or desktop publishing, and they're worth it. Now, um, he, he wrote, and then he was in Hollywood for a while. He was a great friend of all the high and the mighty. And he became, what was so interesting, his, because he wrote primarily about his childhood. Here he was living in the fancy life with tuxedos on every night in New York City or in Westchester County. But actually, his success derived entirely from his childhood stories of growing up in the Deep South in a very religious small town where the social strata, especially with blacks and whites, was established uh, in a most uh, insufferable uh, way, but that's the way it was when he was a child. He he wrote, however, uh, to a sort of a William Jennings Bryan America. He wasn't really just writing about the South, because uh, in 1910, most Americans still lived in small towns, and most Americans lived in lives where the sort of Grover's Corners, New Hampshire, was not all that different from uh, Fairfield, Kentucky, except uh, uh, different sides of your grandfather and in the Civil War because the power of Christian ideas and the churches and the lodges and the masons and the small businesses, it was all, um, it was sort of William Jennings Bryan. And populist, small town, um, Protestant sort of living was not just restricted to the South. Now, uh, when he began to write after the Depression and after Franklin Delano Roosevelt, whom he abhorred, and that was not a good thing because he he got involved in politics in his weekly column. But anyway, um, he, uh, as America began to change, and as the structure of the races in, in America began to change, especially in the big cities of the Northeast and Middle West, and there was huge uh, potential movement in American life, uh, he shifted from being kind of a general understander and wonderful evoker of small town uh, values in beautiful little uh, vignettes of uh, of uh, that all uh, that that you get in his stories of of Judge Priest always interceding in some wily, crafty, and somewhat mint julep hazed way, with a tremendous twinkle in his eye, in favor of the underdog, be it the. Um, African-American, quote, servant or convict or the person who's about to be strung up or uh, the local uh, Jew who sort of uh, runs a store but is on the outside or the local Italian minority who are feeling very sort of beleaguered and um, not really part of things. And he actually talked of tolerance, reconciliation, and kindness in a way that you can cut with a knife in almost all of his stories. But as America changed, um, uh, he himself, uh, Urban S. Cobb, got a little nervous, and he sort of turned into a professional Southerner. Instead of being a spokesman for the whole country, you might say. He became a kind of professional Southerner. He hosted the Academy Awards in 1937, for example, with Shirley Temple. and He um, he became kind of a, a, a caricature of himself. And uh, by the time he got ready to die, which was during the middle of the Second World War, he was um, really on the way out. And he was very surprised, uh, although he couldn't know this, when at his funeral, which he expected to have thousands of people come to, because he once had been a national character, uh, you know, 600 people came, which 
may sound like a lot, but um, given his notoriety in the 20s and 30s, he knew that he was in the way out, and he died in 44. And then he did a very unfortunate thing. Early in 1942, he did die in 43, he wrote some funeral instructions, which were then published after he died. And here Cobb, who had spoken so profoundly for the uh, for the Christian um, unconscious of, uh, of, of so many, many people in this country, and I would say the Christian subconscious of, of, a, of a much larger world even than that, because there's a, there's a very, very um, comforting and very beautiful and very, it, it provokes tears. You, you read his stories, I always compare them to Kipling, whom I love so much, but Kipling is a little chillier, a little frostier, a little more icy. Cobb is never icy, and he's got full of heart, and his stories just make you want to just weep every one of them. Now, uh, he, this uh, document came out, though, um, in uh, right after his death on March 10th, 44, and he uh, was immediately, uh, his original small town following became terribly upset. They said, you mean this man really was anti-religious? This man who we thought represented the very heart of small town sort of mercy and church going turns out to have been really a kind of a fifth column of skepticism? Well, he joins the very large ranks, goes for years and years and centuries of people who have been beguiled by the example of the rabbi Jesus of Nazareth, the man from Galilee, the, the man the, the Ken Darby does his, uh, his cantata of based on Alfred Newman's score from the robe, and, uh, uh, or uh, Isaac Dennison, uh, beguiled with the picture of compassion, grace, and caritas, <coughs> and yet and yet very <coughs> anxious and really very negative towards its institutional embodiment. And this is what he wrote in this uh, instruction that got national publicity and got people just furious. And this is one of the reasons, he, it's sort of like he, he, he had a constituency from the, you might call it the, the religious right, uh, and yet now they found, which he never was part of, but now they found out that he really wasn't one of them. So even those people who were his fans dropped away. This is what he says. Kindly observe, this is him writing, kindly observe the final wishes of the undersigned and avoid reading the so-called Christian burial service, which in view of the language employed in it, I regard as <clears throat> one of the most cruel things inherited by our forebears from our remote pagan ancestors. In deference to the faith of my dear mother, who was through her lifetime a loyal, though never bigoted, communicant of that congregation... Perhaps the current pastor of the First Presbyterian Church of Paducah would consent to read the 23rd Psalm, which was her favorite passage in the scriptures, and is mine. And then he proceeds to say the following, his views on religion. As an aside, this is good. Uh, but it's uh, dicey in its context even then. I might add that my notion of an ideal religion would combine the dignity and beauty of the Romanist ritual with certain other ingredients, the good taste and the ability of the Episcopalians, a trait not too common to some of the evangelical groups, to mind their own business. To these add the noble ethics and the splendid tolerances of Reformed Judaism, the sturdy independence and good business principles, he writes, of the Mormons, the gentle humility and orderly humanity of the Quakers, plus the militant zeal and unselfish devotion 
of the Salvation Army, who fight the trenches of sin's no-man's land to reclaim the tortured souls and clothe the naked bodies of those whom the rest of a snobbish world forgot. Now, this is good. This is very, very good. But you can see that he, he ha- he's very down on institutional church life, to say the least. And it's sort of an easy target. We know what an easy target that is, but this is what he wrote. He finished by saying this. If based on this combination was a determination to practice the sectless preachments and the teachings of Jesus Christ, who was the first true gentleman of recorded history and the greatest gentleman that ever lived, I might not have joined the fold, but certainly I'd have stood on the sidelines and cheered for it. Well, um, golly, uh, here he was a national figure representing small town, you might call it sort of uh, middle rank uh, Christian Protestant America, who then had gradually edged himself and embraced the role of a kind of professional southerner and a bit of a phony who still had tons of money and liked his uh, high living. And then he he pulls the rug under uh, himself in 1943. So you can see this man is a very, there's a lot here uh, in his work, uh, in his life that that brings down a wrath. Now, the principal things that brings down wrath is his uh, his racial and ethnic stereotyping. Now, you can say all you want about, well, that's the way it was in 1911, and we know that. We know that from D.W. Griffith and silent movies. We know that from uh, a million things that were written in that era, uh, certainly before 1929 in this country. Uh, we know the way it was, and we can't deny that it was that way. It doesn't make it right, and it doesn't make it readable. And his uh, tremendous uh, uh, reliance on the context from which he was writing, where these uh, ideas permeated the uh, the white world of first America or second America, whatever it's called today, um, this makes his uh, material almost impossible to read. And you have to simply kind of take a, a, a amnesia uh, pill before you read it, and or a context pill, and simply let it float off you. Because remember, in 150 years, uh, it won't read the same way it does today, and it's certainly read this way in the 60s. But uh, underneath it, if you take that oblivion pill, and that may be enough just to put you to sleep and say, forget about it, I'm never going to read this guy, and why should I? I can't find his books anyway. They're nowhere except read books in Birmingham, Alabama, and then uh, you got to go way, way in the back, and that's only because he just got them in from Minnesota or Toronto. Now, um, th- th- that's why people can't read him today. But I still want to get you to read a couple of his stories. Now, uh, secular critics who like him because he was an outstanding, effective writer of short stories will always quote his story Snake Doctor and Fishhead, which are more in the Gothic variety. Or when I was a child in school, I was read a story called Faith, Hope, and Charity about three escaped criminals who get theirs because as a very strong providential slash karma slash crime doesn't pay element in much of Cobb as there was in the in the literature of the South always has been a strong, providential, dark, providential undertow, faith, hope, and love. And then there's a story called We Can't All Be Thoroughbreds about the Far West and the and uh, uh, Geronimo that is curls the curdles the blood. But the real stories that you you would read, you would begin by reading The Sun Shines Bright, which is located, and again, you can find it in the internet, in uh, a series of stories called Old Judge Priest. I have a 1916 copy of that in front of me. And then you want to read John Ford's favorite story, which was in, uh, I think, Down Yonder, uh, 
We're back home. Now, down yonder, it's called. Uh, here it is. Let's see. I've got a 1932 edition of this. It's called Down Yonder with Judge Priest and Irving Cobb. And that story is called The Sun Shines Bright. And in the same book is a story called Black and White, which is... Uh, again, you see, if you really read what's really going on, these books are about tolerance, reconciliation, forgiveness, and uh, and unity. They are not about division, a caricature, and uh, and uh, contemptible um, identity politics. His story, Black and White, is uh, one of the most reconciled books, uh, reconciling books about slave, post-slave African American man, and post-Civil War veterans. And it's a powerful story. But again, um, uh, you all have to judge for yourself. And and it may be 150 years before that particular one can take its place. And then his very powerful story with no racial overtones, although it has a kind of a send-up of early German immigrants to New York City, his story called A Beautiful Evening, which is also called A Letter to the Editor of the Sun. Now, um, those are the stories that are great. And of course, the movie Sun Shines Bright is not on DVD. And I've got it here on a video, but it cannot be seen on DVD. And I don't know if it'll ever come out. But it's a recognized work of art by, by all cineasts. And uh, again, if you can get beyond uh, some of the initial caricature and see where he ends with the funeral of the prostitute, you'll see why Ford poured his heart and soul into this story and why the story captured his own compassionate imagination. Now, I'm going to read as a conclusion. I'm going to give you a feeling now for the high points of Irvin S. Cobb and what makes him so good. And um, then I'll finish. And you can follow it up in any way you wish. He happens to be one of my faves, as you can see, uh, because of the introduction I had through John Ford. Um, and I've really studied this over the years. Uh, and uh, uh, I want to go to Paducah to see his uh, his grave. Uh, but he was full of himself and in many ways impossible. Uh, but, you know, um, uh, this is a story that that captures something really deep. And here it is. Um, in this uh, particular story, the Lord provides a, a prostitute has come back home to Paducah and she has died. And the madam of the brothel down by the river uh, has come to all the uh, this young woman's last wish that she be given a Christian burial. Now, she uh, her um, the madam, who's a woman of goodwill, but she is what she is. And she's, of course, a pariah in this uptight community, which is relatively actually because of liquor, uh, more tolerant than at first. It sounds, but on the surface, it's pretty much a community of Pharisees. And this woman, the Madame, cannot find a minister to bury this uh, young woman who's died in her charge. And she's been to every single Protestant church and not a single of the ministers. She thought the Episcopalian might, but he was away. And only the Roman Catholic was willing to do it. But you see, the girl said, I'm not a Catholic. In fact, I'm, I'm a Protestant and I, I have to be buried by a Protestant minister. And so the Madam Mally Cramp, and this is in the movie, The Sunshine's Bright, had struck out. And so she finally goes to the only man in the whole community whom she regards as truly graceful, who treats her when she happens to be in his courtroom with respect. And she uh, comes to him and he agrees to uh, conduct, uh, to do the funeral for this woman. And he uh, ends up shaming, without meaning to, but the facts shame, almost all the Pharisees in the town. And many of them are brokenhearted and come to the service. And these are his remarks. Judge Priest, as he speaks in Irvin S. Cobb's story, The Lord Provides. My edition, as I said, I think is 1916. I deem it to have been characteristic, this is Cobb now, I deem it to have been characteristic of the old judge, 
that he made no explanation for his presence before them, that's the congregation, and no including all the other uh, women of ill repute who are gathered in the front pew, what used to be called the mourner's bench. And I need to make no apology for his assumption of so unusual a role. He opened his black-bound volume at a place where his plump forefinger had been thrust between the leaves to mark the place for him. And in his high, thin voice, Judge Priest read through the service for the dead with its promise of the divine forgiveness. When he had reached the end of it, he put the book aside and spoke to them in the fair and grammatical English that usually he reserved for his utterances from the bench in open court. Our sister who lies here, asked with almost her last conscious breath that at her funeral a sermon should be preached. Upon me, who never before attempted such an undertaking, devolves the privilege of speaking a few words above her. I had thought to take for my text the words, He that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. But I have changed my mind. I changed it only a little while ago, for I recalled that once upon a time the master said, Suffer the little children to come unto me, and forbid them not, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. And I believe, goes on the judge, I believe in the scheme of everlasting mercy and everlasting pity, that before the eyes of our common creator, we are, all of us, as little children whose feet stumble in the dark. So I shall take that saying of the Savior for my text. He continues, and I'm almost finished. Perhaps it will be unjust to those whose business is the preaching of sermons to call this a sermon, writes Cobb. I, for one, never heard any other sermon in any other church that did not last longer than five minutes. And certainly Judge Priest, having made his beginning, did not speak for more than five minutes. The caressing fingers of the sunlight had not perceptibly shifted upon the flower-strewn coffin-top when he finished what he had to say and stood with his head bowed. After that, except for a rustle of close-packed body and a clearing of men's huskened throats, there was silence for a little time. Now, I take that to be, uh, personally, a description of what I might call the purest Christianity. Uh, Judge Priest, aptly named, Judge uh, Priest is the priest. He is the exponent, non-ordained, and in fact, it turns out he doesn't even go to church. He spends a lot of time on Sundays finding good political excuses, mainly, to not, in fact, formally attend church, except for uh, state occasions and funerals. He is not, in fact, a churchman. And yet he is the exact embodiment of this message where he says, in the scheme of everlasting mercy and everlasting pity, before the eyes of our common creator, we are, all of us, as little children whose feet stumble in the dark. Now, I take this uh, uh, presentation of a funeral in the Judge Priest story, The Lord Provides, to be one of the most graphic and perfect and pure and lucid and transparent and simple and artless expressions of the absolute center of what the Gospels uh, portray the man from Galilee to have been about and to be speaking about. And I often feel that if we could uh, uh, go 150 years from now and just take a 
Actually, this story you can read to this day because there's no racial subtext in it almost at all, except at the very beginning of that story. If you could take all that away, uh, you uh, would find in this that one sort of uh, pearl of great price that still could contribute to the common wheel of this, uh, this darkened world. Thank you for listening to my words about the Kentucky unread but finally worthy short story writer, Irvin Shrewsbury Cobb.